Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff After Hours. This is Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired NYPD detective sergeant, did 27 years at a Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me today is an audience and crowd favorite in Brooklyn's own, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How's it going, Phil? Pretty good, Bill, and I'm excited to uh, talk about the uh, latest developments on this case. You know, it's... Uh, the only one we're missing today is uh, is Joe Murray, and I know that he went away somewhere, and he's he's going to see one of his clients is actually a um, a UFC fighter, and he's going to to watch those fights. So uh, too bad Joe didn't join us, but uh, we can do it without him. You know, we 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 love his perspective because he doesn't always agree with us, but uh, that's all part of this. Anyway, folks, if you're not subscribed to Police Off the Cuff on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring the bell make comments, you know, uh, good ones, bad ones, whatever you want to do. Uh, I just, well, some of the up and coming things, if you notice, we have two parts to police off the cuff. We do a show called police off the cuff, which is mainly interviewing, um, retired members of the service, active members of the service, uh, guys who had great police careers, highlighting those careers. And the second part is, uh, police off the cuff, real crime stories, which I've been doing now for a, a bunch of months and um, mostly with Phil Grimaldi and uh, Joe Murray, the attorney, retired police officer, he comes on the show. On Tuesday, August 17th, I'm going to do a show uh, that's really not real crime, but it's going to go under that heading. And I'm going to uh, have the three detectives with me that night that responded to the 9-11, uh, to the Twin Towers, the attacks on the World Trade Center. And it's... Uh, if you haven't been paying attention, this year is 20 years since that horrible event. And I just thought it would be a uh, to commemorate it, not to celebrate it, to commemorate and remember it, to be with the three detectives that night uh, on, on the 17th and talk about that day and where they came since then. What are they doing 20 years from now? How they've survived, if they have any issues health-wise, how it affected them mentally. That type of thing. I think it will be a heartfelt and really uh, touching tribute to the folks that we lost on that day. Um, on the 18th, we have an unbelievable show. And I, I'm not, a lot of you folks are Phil so excited because uh, this is like a Brooklyn thing, you know. We have Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, the Donnie. most famous FBI undercover in the history of the FBI. Great guy. He's been, been on the show twice before. But to make that show even better, we have retired first-grade detective Tommy Dades, who happens to be an expert on the mafia. He actually has a book out called Friends of the Family, where he uh, tells how he and many others put away the mafia cops, who were two NYPD detectives who turned bad and were actually doing hits for the mafia. So on the same bad, show, turn, yeah. So on the same show, we have Joe Pistone, aka Donnie Brasco, and Tommy Dades, and of course, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi will be with us that night. How could I do a, a story about the mob without Phil? You know, he's got to be here. Absolutely, <laughs> that that's going to be. I'm really excited about that. For uh, obviously the 9/11 show, 20 years, I was down there. Uh, I 
still have health issues from uh, the exposure down there. I know you were down there and uh, the 20-year anniversary, like you said, we're not going to celebrate that. We're just going to, you know, comm commemorate it, so to speak. And uh, that's going to be a great show, I'm sure. But the the uh, the Joe Pistone, Tommy Dades episode, I'm telling you guys, it's going to be riveting because you have uh, someone that was undercover for five years, uh, really infiltrated the mob. It's an amazing story. They made the motion picture, Donnie Brasco, about it, which starred Johnny Depp, uh, Al Pacino, and many others. And Tommy Dades, who I personally worked with, he's a great friend of mine. I talk to him just about every day. Um who was a superstar in the organized crime enforcement in uh, the New York area, specifically in Brooklyn, as you said. And uh, that's going to be, I mean, you, you're going to get really riveting conversation. And I just look at so forward to that. That's going to be great, Bill. Thank you, man. Susan Brahma, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. You know, when we talk about commemorating the 9-11 uh, attacks, we do it the most with the most respect. For us, that's a sacred day, a day that, you know, we lost many of our brothers. Uh, at, I believe it was uh, 33 NYPD cops, another, I believe, 36 Port Authority, and the unthinkable number of, I think it was 334 uh, fired FDNY firefighters. So for us, that pain uh, never goes away. It's uh, tough to talk about and think about it, but I think one of the best ways to deal with something like that is, is, is to, in fact, uh, talk about it. And again, the episode with Tommy Dades and uh, Joe Pistone, uh, it's going to be off the hook. I mean, talk about, you know, Joe Pistone, uh, actually Phil uh, stated incorrectly, he wasn't undercover five years. He was undercover for six years, which is unheard really? of. When, and when I interviewed him, he told me, uh, I asked the question, how many times did you get home? during those six years. If I had to give one number and I said about 40 times, he said about that. So just think of that. He only went home about 40 days in six years. I don't know how many, why I go out and my wife wants to know where I was when I get home, you know, and he was gone for six I was just years, walking you know? the dog. I was just walking the dog. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. And, you know, and he came home and he demanded why his dinner wasn't on the table. <laughs> yeah. let, let me right? tell you though, think about that. Six years, he lived the life of a wise guy. And if you read his book where he got into scrapes with different guys and there were times when he, he thought he was going to get killed, it's a fantastic, phenomenal, riveting story. And we're going to have the real life uh, Joe Pistone, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, a New York favorite, obviously, and Tommy Dades right out of Brooklyn. You're going to have me right out of Brooklyn. You have NYPD <laughs> Sergeant Bill Cannon. I'm telling you, it's going to be a great episode. That's great. You know, Phil, behind your head, it says NYPD detectives, the greatest in the world. Now, I don't, I don't see that as an idle boast. It is, in fact, the truth. We have the best detectives on this earth in the NYPD, the best training, the best police department in the entire world. So, you know, when people say, you know, they talk to talk, maybe they can't walk the walk. I think we can do both, you know, and you got that certain amount of bluster. What did I used to call it in your walk? It was that stagger. Let's know the swagger. The swagger. swagger. They yeah. could say, hey, you got that swagger of a New York City cop. You bet. But you know something? We both earned it, right? So Absolutely. And and that poster behind me, 
we were given that moniker many years ago as being the greatest detectives in the world. You have no idea how proud I am of that. And it goes back to the days of the French Connection and all the different things that occurred over the years. And we're the largest police department, highest in technology, and the detectives. There's not many people in the world that can say I was an NYPD detective and we're an elite group. And I'm not trying to brag. I mean, you know, you, the, the the numbers speak for themselves. They, we've solved some really, really difficult cases over the years. And uh, we are who we are. For sure. Little Linda, I, I'm going to I'm going to uh, re read what you wrote. Rest in peace, Robert Bobby Michael Kalfas, Port Authority Police Department. Uh, yes, Robert uh, Bobby, rest in peace. Um, Jojo Peanut, Yan bumped into someone at the airport that knew him calling out Joe. He had to punch him and say he was looking at my, yeah. Joe told us that story, actually. Uh, a, a, um, a U.S. attorney saw him in an airport when he was with Sonny Black, who was a captain in the Gambino yeah. crime family. And the guy approached Joe Pistone and was going to be like, hey, Joe. Yeah. yeah, and uh, he, he had to hit the guy. And, and get out of there. And the um, uh, Sonny Black said to him, he goes, what'd you do that for? He goes, the guy grabbed my ass, you know, or whatever. That was, that was quick thinking. That was really, that shows you how into it he was and how close he was walking the line to be discovered. And, you know, th there was probably many days when he had that running through his head, you know, if he saw someone and, you know, it's, I actually ran into, a detective that was undercover one time and it was a, a drug case and uh, I knew him. And, and at first, my first instinct was to say hello to him. And then I said, wait a second, he might be working. Sure enough, he was, but there was a pizzeria in Brooklyn. Uh, he was doing a, a, a crack cocaine case, but uh, yeah, funny stuff. You got to remember uh, when you're out on the street, uh, you can't, you know, give someone up, you know, yeah, we used to uh, say we used to say that in anti-crime, you know, when you'd be out on a follow and uh, someone would say, oh, I got made. And you'd say, how do you know you got made? Well, the guy looked, looked at me. We said, don't give him credit. Don't don't say you're made until you 100 percent know you were made. Because yeah, a lot of these yeah. guys, you know, they, they don't make you, but they say they do. Anyway, folks, uh, this is a heartbreaking case, obviously. Um, Madison Phillips, thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. This is day 53 of the Summer Wells case. Um, uh, uh, how far are we on this case? How close are we to uh, making an arrest? Or how close are we to finding Summer Wells? And one of the things I keep saying on this case is that only the FBI, the TBI, and the local police know the exact direction they're going in this case. A lot of the uh, stuff you see on YouTube, they're just they're vetting information that they're getting from liars. And they're trying to compare that and saying, this is the timeline. You don't really know the timeline because you don't have the correct evidence. You're taking Don's word. You're taking Candace's word. You're taking H's word. And you're taking grandma's word. But guess what? No one on YouTube interviewed them against versus the evidence versus the real Techno technological timeline that the police surely by this time they have that they must have that so without the evidence and vetting the interviews and the interrogation against the technology and against 
um, indiscrepancies by individual wit- witnesses. You can't have a proper timeline. And I don't care who's telling you they do. They don't. Bill, comments? A- absolutely, Bill. I just want to say a couple of things right off the bat. I mean, we're over 50 days into this case. Now, obviously, a lot of the listeners, the viewers, and us as being uh, a retired police officers, detectives, investigators, we're frustrated as well. But we are rightfully so to be frustrated. And I think that we don't have intimate knowledge of the case. We don't know exactly what's going on. And I'm okay with that. We shouldn't know it. The people, the public shouldn't know the intimate uh, knowledge and the intimate details of the case. That's the way it's supposed to be. However, I think that the things going forward, uh, obviously, if Little Summer is found, we would pray and hope to God that she's found alive. But if she's not, when her remains are found, if that's what's going to be, then I think that uh, things will probably speed up. Um, You know, right now, what I'm thinking, and only because we know a lot of details from the media about Don and Candace and stuff like that, um, I think it's totally possible. There's a chance that they're not involved in her disappearance. There's, There's a small possibility in my mind. But because I never close the door on anything. And Bill, you've said that too. I mean, sometimes you have to change direction. But with all the inconsistencies in their story, and I'll stand with this today, that I believe that they've told mistruths. And I think they need to be uh, called out on that. And there's very a very good chance that they're involved in the disappearance and, uh, you know, what happened to Summer. Now, with that said, um, the district attorney's office, the TBI, the local law enforcement, the FBI, they may be uh, at a posture at this point that they may have to go ahead with the investigation and possible criminal charges without recovery of Summer. So that might be a possibility in this. There's a chance that she may not be found. And if that happens, then they will proceed with the evidence they have. There's a ton of things we don't know about this case, Bill, and we've talked about it. We don't know anything about what they recovered on cell phone information. There's a ton of things that they could have found out about that. There's video information. We don't know what they recovered on that. And there's probably hundreds of interviews that they've done already. So there's a lot of things that are going to point in a direction that we don't know about. I'm okay with that. Am I frustrated? Yes. Is Are all the viewers frustrated? I'm sure they are. But you have to just take everything as it comes and uh, I'm sure that we're going to have a conclusion to this case sometime in the future. It's just a matter of it could be tomorrow. It could be a week from now. It could be a month from now. It could be a year from now. We don't know when. You know, Phil, one of the things that we we had stated, and uh, I still state and I still stand by it, is that one of the most important interviews is the interview of the three boys. Because yeah. if it turns out um, that they never saw Summer come back to that house, that's pretty damn important information. And you know that the police know that right now. They have that information. They're not sharing it. It's not out there. So those are the type of things, the information and the truths that you can vet against other things to totally blow the story out of the water of, uh, of what Candace and Don have been, have been stating as well as H. Who knows if H is telling the truth, you know? So all of those things, we talk about specific evidentiary information that can vet or, you know, confirm or deny the information that they've given in regards to their, you know, basically interviews 
on YouTube, which you know are not reliable. Uh, you know, it's not reliable at all. So that's the information that we're looking for. Diana Quinton, uh, she asked, "What kind of horrible accident incident would cause three adults to lie and cover up the event rather than take a child to an ER?" They weren't shy about calling 911 for a missing child, so why not call if there's an accident? You know, Diana, that's a, a theory that a lot of people on YouTube, a lot of people that have been following this case, they're they're sort of predicting that that's something that happened. Could an accident have happened, and could they not have done the right thing because they were intoxicated or high on alcohol or drugs and afraid that they could be charged? It is a possibility, but so many, so many things are a possibility in this case that we can't conjecture. And I, I just want to make a, another quick, you know, the longer this case stays open, the more theories that we're going to have that aren't based on evidence of fact. And one of the things that I, I've never known a major city's homicide unit to ever do is to use a psychic. And I know that in New York City, we never, in, in, in my career that I can remember, or even had I heard about, is the NYPD ever using a psychic. I could be wrong, but from as far as my career and what I've heard in the time that I was on the job, from uh, 1985 to 2011, I've never heard of a psychic ever being used on a homicide. How about you, Phil? No, I, I never put much weight in uh, psychic ability on solving a homicide case. And like you said, in my experiences, we never, I never came across a case where we enlisted the help of a psychic. Um, I don't think there's been any case across the country where a psychic has been uh, utilized and, and there was uh, positive results. I mean, sometimes they talk in such generalizations that, uh, you know, they could, uh, the person was missing their body of water, their, the water, things like that. So I, I don't put a lot of weight in that. Listen, it's anything is possible. Um, I think that probably 99% of, of uh, psychics, they fluff it, they fake it, they, they, you know, they, they ask for information and then they go on what they ask. So that, that's, I, I don't put a lot of weight. Yeah, yeah Phil, 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 I, I, I see trees. Right, <laughs> you know? right, exactly, exactly. The person exactly. is going to be recovered near some trees. Oh, that's yeah, pretty yeah. good. You know? That's kind of general, wouldn't you say? I, you know, yeah, so, I, I would. Listen, it's almost like, you know, when you when you talk about uh, a man and a woman, if you if you say well it's it's a, a man, you're fifty percent right. You, you know there's a chance that you're going to be right if if you're guessing the gender of a person, you know things like that. So, uh, you know it's it's so generalized. I don't put a lot of weight in it, and I don't think that. Uh, listen, if a psychic gets a hold of us and says, look, this is where you should look, we would pass that information on, obviously. And if they found, uh, you know, the some of there. I think that they'd be looking at the psychic to say, well, how did you notice information? You know, so, right. so I don't put a lot of weight in that. And listen, anything's possible. Like we said earlier, we, you know, we're not closing the door on anything. But I just want to say one other thing about how we've been analyzing this case. We have been looking at it from a professional standpoint. We have not stated anything that we didn't stand up with. What I mean by that is this. When we get questions on the chat... I'm open to anybody's theory or question. When I make a statement, when you make a statement, Bill, we have no problem with someone challenging it. Joe Murray does that when we have him on the show. And I love Joe. Joe gives a great perspective to the show. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just like if the three of us were working on a case 
and we would maybe throw our theories out to each other as the case developed. So I think that we've maintained, and I answered that in one of the comments on the last show. We, uh, somebody said, you guys do a great job. And I said, we try to maintain a professional opinion about what we're talking about. I think we've held to that standard. And I know that there's a lot of different internet uh, people and, and shows and podcasts and stuff. We're going to stay with what we know and what we think is happening. And a lot of the opinion that we're given is based on, like I made a point in one of the previous shows that the posture of law enforcement in this case is this. They didn't put an all out bulletin that a kid was taken and they didn't go in that direction. Did they post pictures, Amber Alert? Yes, because that's what you do. That's the routine stuff you do. But from there forward, if there was a good chance and they felt that she was abducted and there was a chance she was alive, they would have plastered media. It would have been all out broadcast of she's missing, she's been taken. So we don't think we're not putting a lot of weight in that uh, area of the investigation. We don't think, in our opinions, and I think you and I and even Joe agrees that the chance of her have being abducted is very, very slim. We're not closing the door. And tomorrow morning, she may show up alive and the person she was abducted, and that would be great news. But we're not closing the door on it. But in our opinions, we're giving our professional opinions. And we're not giving professional opinions from not being involved in law enforcement. We're, if you combine our careers together, we got over 50 years in law enforcement, most of it in the detective bureau. And in the NYPD, the detective bureau is the elite of uh, the police department of at times almost 40,000 people that you were in the detective bureau working on cases. We have the experience. We had the technology. So the, the, the point is our opinions are coming from a professional standpoint. You know, 100%. And one of the things that I also like to uh, reiterate and restate is that Phil and I on Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, we're not going to solve this case. We're just speaking about the case in regards to the investigative direction, investigative techniques, and we're talking about some of the things that we know to be facts. I don't really like to use unvetted information as fact because it can change in a minute. And if when it is vetted with real, real evidence, and it, it can change. That's why you and I get along so well, Bill, because I'm a very fact-based person. I mean this. I mean this. I'm a very fact-based person in my life before I was a police officer, before I was a detective. And when I applied that to my investigation and my police work, I was always successful with that type of, you know, you take that standpoint that I don't go on here say, I, if somebody tells me something, I want to back it up. So that's how I've always worked. And that's the way police work is in general. I'm not saying that I'm some, you know, I'm the only one that does it. We all do it this way. You got to go on facts. You got to base it on what you know. And sometimes you can get led into a direction and you think you're going in the right direction and you hit a brick wall and you have to back up and you have to go back into another direction. I've done that on cases before. I spoke about it and uh, it's just the way it is, you know, uh, this case is frustrating for us, and we said it earlier. We don't have the information that the investigators have. We don't have access to the uh, case folder. And I can imagine it's frustrating for them, too, because they probably want to, you know, they want to find Summer and everything, and, and you know, they want to have a conclusion to the case, too. But investigation is not a one-hour TV show. You know, it's 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 a long process at times. Sometimes things happen quick. I've, I've solved 
not that I solved or we solved, my team solved the homicide in, in as little as a couple of hours. I mean, I, I was involved in a triple homicide and at eight o'clock in the morning, we were standing over three dead bodies. And by midnight, we had two people in custody and they made confessions and everything. So it does happen that way sometimes. This case is obviously a much longer process. And uh, You know, Phil, they used to, they called that show that's very good on TV called uh, The First 48 and, and it, with the yeah. theory that if you don't get some good information the first 48 hours, the uh, homicide could go unsolved. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, that's not, to that's not totally true, but I used to say, yeah. well, my, my team's the first 24. Because that's how fast yeah. we make the arrest, you know. <laughs> which you know is, what, which was there's something to be said about the first 48 hours of an investigation. There's like a lot of meat that goes into the fire. I would agree with some part of that, but I don't think that because you don't solve it in the first 48 hours, it goes. Well, it's, it, the theory is just that if you don't solve it in the first 48, it becomes more difficult to solve. You have yeah, to lay down the foundation in the first 48. Diana Quinton. Thank you so much for the $20 super chat. And you ask a question, what kind of horrible accident incident would cause three adults to lie and cover up the event rather than take a child to an ER? They weren't shy about calling 911 for a missing child. So why not call if there's an accident? You know, if, if that theory rings true, they only, they know that answer right now. And to, to predict, they could have done something like that again because of a uh, intoxication uh, either alcohol or drugs, that it was some horrible accident through their negligence, and they they felt like covering it up. And I, again, that's a hypothesis. That's a guess. Is it an educated guess? We don't have enough information right now to say that. Uh, so I can't really say that. I, I'd like to expand on that a little bit, Bill, because if, God forbid, there was some horrible accident, like you said, there could have been drug involvement, uh, there could have already been child protective services intervention into the family, and they maybe felt that they could be held responsible for it. So let's cover it up. I mean, if if God forbid there was an accident, she was dead, and they knew she was she was dead, and they didn't want to expose themselves to criminal charges or investigation, or you know, they didn't want to be uh, looked at. Uh, like you said, there could have been drugs and stuff. So maybe a quick thought. Let's. She's dead anyhow. Let's cover it up. I mean that that theory is definitely on the table and possible. Um, as far as Candace and Don go on the previous show, I think I got a little heated in how I would, you know, requestion her. And I, 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 when we talk about investigative techniques and police work that we've experienced, we don't expose everything that we do. I don't talk about every single thing that I would do in an interrogation. But I did get a little fired up and and. You know, it's just my, uh, I guess it, it's just my, you know, my my instincts to, you know, to attack what I see is clearly mistruths. That's what happened when I was getting a little excited about how I would go back at Don or I'd go back at Candace because I'm seeing, and it's public knowledge, they're doing all these interviews, they're talking on the internet and on different podcasts. So it's hard for me to hold back from my emotion to want to jump in. And, you know, this is my instincts to, uh, you know, to attack those mistruths, you know. So now I'm not apologizing for it. It's the way it is. And I, I feel strongly about my views that I would like to get Candace in the room. I'd like to get Don in the room and I'd like to go at them and say, hey, you know, you said this. And I know from your cell phone that that wasn't true. Or I know from this videotape that wasn't true. Or I know from this witness so and so said that you weren't there and this, you know. 
or the boy said, or grandma said, or, you know, uh, H said, there's so many things that I would love to get into in an interview in the box with that room. And I'd love to have you right by my side. Cause I think as a, as a tag team, I think we'd come out with some, uh, very positive results out of an interview without, listen, I'm not talking about getting physical or anything like that. That's crossing the line. But I think that if we could, if we were loaded, as the old saying goes, if we were loaded for the bear with our information and we had a first interview, now we're going to re-interview them. And we know all this other interview, uh, other information and other evidence that we've recovered from cell phones and from videos and all the interviews, I would be very confident that we could find out a, if they're involved or B, if they're not involved. And I think we'd be able to either clear them and there's a possibility that they're not involved or we would be able to get the truth. So 100%. Uh, Terry Varela asks a question. Is there a lead law enforcement agency in Summers case? Is it Hawkins County uh, law enforcement or TBI or FBI who is working the case? The way that usually works is the, the lead agency is the police jurisdiction where the crime occurs. However, the lead jurisdiction can abdicate the lead to either the FBI or the TBI in this case because of maybe uh, more experience. And I could just tell you in the NYPD, we would never abdicate the case to the FBI or to another law enforcement agency. We would run it and they would work with us. If you ever, if you watch the Boston Marathon bombing, which was years ago with the Zarnayev brothers, Boston is another outstanding police town, police agency. I'm sure they didn't just let the FBI run rough shot over them because I saw the chief from Boston on television many times talking about the investigation. So when you have a highly experienced police department like Boston or NYPD, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Chicago, they're not going to be pushed out of the way in a major investigation. They will run it. And they'll take all the assistance they can get from the federal agencies, which uh, would work the case. You know, there's jurisdictional uh, boundaries that have to go in place. Like uh, what you said, obviously, is all true. The local police, they might be a small police department, so they take a state agency to help them. So they're still under the same umbrella, the same jurisdiction. That's where I think the TBI, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, come in. It sounds like they're a state agency. The local Hawkins County Sheriff's Office would be responsible with the prosecutor the district attorney from that area. Now the FBI gets involved. Obviously they have tremendous amounts of technology at their fingertips. They have deep pockets when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, laying out money for different uh, cell phone towers or cell phone searches and stuff like that. So a lot of times they'll assist in a missing person case because the possibility remains if that missing person was taken over a state line, then their jurisdiction can come into play a federal jurisdiction. So, uh, they're going to work with as much help as they can get on a case like this. I'm sure that the Hawkins County Sheriff's Office is not that big. So the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation helps them. And again, they stay under the same umbrella of, uh, you know, the Tennessee uh, jurisdiction with the district attorney's office or the, the state prosecutor. And the help of the FBI, I mean, you couldn't ask for uh, anything better, especially when you're in a small town police department. And as you stated, Bill, the, uh, the NYP doesn't, uh, you know, capitulate to other agencies unless it's a federal 
jurisdiction. And then, you know, uh, something like the World Trade Center bombing, uh, was, uh, the bombing and then the, uh, the attacks, that fell under uh, federal guidelines. So that's when they, uh, they would come in. And there was still a hand-in-hand, -hand, a joint investigation. But the, uh, the, the perpetrators, whoever would be arrested for those things, would be tried in a federal court. So there is jurisdictional boundaries that uh, come into play in these cases. Right. Uh, Louise Haraway asks again, does, does the FBI take over the case from law enforcement? I just answered that. No, they do not. They assist law enforcement. They do not take over the case. Another thing I'd like to just mention, because a lot of people get misinformation from television and other areas, is that no one person solves a homicide. That is such oh, yeah. a misnomer and so ridiculous. Homicide is a team. It's a team event. It's a team investigation. Every single person you need that works a homicide contributes something to it. So to say that one guy solves a homicide is absolute nonsense. You see some of those shows on investigation discovery where a guy says, oh, I personally solved 300 homicides. You know he's lying because no one personally solves a homicide case. It's a team effort. Just like thought I would throw that out there. Uh, I couldn't no, agree more about that, Bill. That's that's. I've said this before. From the minute that something happens, when a person calls nine one one, you're already involving that nine one one operator. She gives the call to the local police. They respond. They're involved in it. So it's listen. It, on the case folder, it might have my name on the case folder, but it doesn't mean that I solved this case all by myself. It's a team effort. There's usually dozens of people involved in a homicide investigation. Even the person, the EMS person that comes, the ambulance uh, technician that responds and pronounces the person dead, that's a person that may have offer information that might solve the case. There's so many different aspects of uh, homicide investigation. Bella 2021, they must have a wealth of information gathered already. I'm sure why is, it, why is it taking so long to see any movement on it? Well, Bella, the answer to that is that they want to make sure when they pull the trigger on this case, if in fact there's going to be an arrest, that they have enough information and evidence to get a conviction. It's Sometimes you can have probable cause, and not yet the district attorney, usually in conjunction with the lead police agency, makes a determination whether or not there's enough, not just to arrest and prosecute, but to get a conviction. It's no good to arrest somebody and then after a trial, they, they beat the case. That's that's one of the problems. So they're making sure they dot their I's and they cross their T's before they move forward with this. Yeah, I'm totally okay with that, Bill. And I'd like to ask your opinion. If you were the you were the supervisor, the sergeant in the homicide squad on this case, would you be okay with how much information was being released or would you want more out there? I, I think you'd probably be okay with it, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I always like to hold withhold the information of from course. the public. Of but course. sometimes you can also use the public and you can use the media to your ends, not to their ends. You know, the fact that the public in this case is getting antsy and they're, they're getting pissed off that there's no information forthcoming, that, that may be detrimental to them, but really good for the police and the investigators. Sheila O., Thank you so much for the 499 super uh, super sticker. Uh, hey Jude, number one, I feel a level of acceptance that summer is in a better place, but I do want charges. I hope not. I hope that uh, we recover summer alive. I absolutely do. 
but I understand your feelings. And um, I don't think Summer had a great life where she was, but uh, life is always better than the alternative. You know, it's always uh, better. We always want to err on the side of life. Phil, I, I just want to go to a quick break, Phil, or you can do the first two. Okay. Are you tired of the same old surroundings, looking to relocate, or are you just in the need of a real estate agent in the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area? Well, Carol Waters is your girl. Her and her husband, Rob Mahan, who is a retired member of the NYPD and the New York Fire Department, are both million-dollar sales agent sales agents in the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area. Carol and her husband, Rob, can be reached at 914-261-6681. That's 914-261-6681. Or you could email Carol at waterselsmb at gmail.com. That's carolwaterselsmb at gmail.com. Joe Murray, big supporter of Police Off the Cuff. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of the fence, literally. His website is jmurray-law.com. jmurray-law.com. He can be reached on his phone at 646-838-1702, 646-838-1702, or you can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com, joe at jmurray-law.com. Folks, Michael O'Keefe is a retired first grade detective from the NYPD, but he's also the author of three novels, Shot to Pieces, A Reckoning in Brooklyn, and Burnt to a Crisp. You can order his books on Amazon.com or his website, MichaelO'KeefeAuthor.com. Michael was the police officer involved in 1992 that got into a life and death fight with a drug dealer, an armed drug dealer then named Kiko Garcia. Uh, Mike was able to come out of that encounter alive. Kiko Garcia wound up uh, shot to death. And that's what led to the Washington Heights riots because of the, inf the misinformation then went out about that shooting. His three novels are somewhat autobiographical in regards to that incident, Shot to Pieces, A Reckoning in Brooklyn, and Burnt to a Crisp. Again, order on Amazon.com or his website, MichaelO'KeefeAuthor.com. Police Coffee is an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends. They, they can provide you with the freshest coffee av available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And our specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Our coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause, giving back to our community. 50% of our profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. To order coffee and related products from policecoffee.com, Go to the website. There are over seven types of coffee to choose from. 50% of profits go to officers, family in need. For a 10% discount, use code OTC10, off the cuff 10. So the website is policecoffee.com. You can order the coffee at that location. Folks, I just wanted to show you this was um, me hey. the, month, <laughs> the month after. Uh, December, actually December 24th, 2001, two months, uh, three months actually after 9-11, I got promoted to detective sergeant. So 
that's me 20 years younger and my my two boys who now are uh 26 and 29. so i just thought looking i would good, uh, bro. looking good god bless that thanks uh, uh thank you so much um yeah folks it, this this case is heartbroken heartbreaking to everyone involved and of course uh we are praying that uh we get a successful closure to this case which the, the best thing that could possibly happen is to recover summer alive you know that she's alive but there's a lot of uh there's a lot of possibilities there is a big possibility that that won't occur so we, we all want answers there's there's no doubt we all want answers to this case and you know, if someone before in the chat said something about, I, oh, we heard that the FBI, the TBI, and the local police have made a lot of mistakes in this case. You know something? There's a lot of mistakes made in every homicide case, every single one. Because I say all the time, and I used to say it when I taught uh, criminal justice at a college, that investigation is both an art and a science, you know? So the art form of it isn't, you know, it, it's not in fact, it, it's it just the art of policing, you know, and it's not a pure science. The science of it also marries with, together with the art, and that's what becomes a powerful investigative tool, the art and the science of investigation put together. So, yeah, can mistakes be made in an investigation? Yes, every single case will have mistakes. Phil, you want to comment on that? I, I think that... Uh when we say mistakes, I don't want people to think that we're talking about contamination of evidence. If there's a, you know, a shell casing found at an emergency and somebody steps on it or something, I don't think it's those kind of mistakes, maybe small mistakes. Yeah. Things like that do occur. But um, going back to one of the other things we were talking about earlier, um, what regard to how the case is going at this point, the investigation, I think a lot of the uh, decisions that are being made with regard to the investigation, a lot of times the district attorney's office, the local prosecutor steers. Like in New York, when we had a homicide investigation and we were ready to, let's say, make an arrest on a case, um, and let's say there was no body recovered, um, we would go to the district attorney's office. In New York, you couldn't make a homicide arrest without having pre-authorization from the local prosecutor, the district attorney's office. So you would sit down and consult with them. They'd be involved in the case from right from the beginning when it was a clear-cut homicide. This was a missing person case. I don't know how soon they got involved in it. Maybe when they started asking for subpoenas and different things like that and search warrants and stuff, they got involved in it. And then they're going to play an active role in steering of the direction of the case. What I mean by that is, there might be enough evidence in the in the minds of the the detectives in this case of the investigators to say, you know what, we want to arrest person A, and the district attorney's office might say, nope, we're going to hold off. Let's wait to see if we can recover remains, or we're going to wait for the results of this uh, technical information that's coming from that cell phone, or we're going to wait for recovery of uh, uh, this information that we got from this person. So a lot of the time, the case. The point I'm trying to make is. That it's a it's a joint effort between law enforcement, which is Hawkins County Sheriff, TBI, FBI, and the prosecutors, because eventually, if there is an arrest in this case, they're going to have to carry the ball and prosecute whoever it is that's arrested, and they want to make sure 
that they have a good solid case. They're not going to go off on a tangent and say, yeah, lock up this guy, lock up that guy. It doesn't work that way. They want to, and sometimes they'll almost like try the case before an arrest is even made. And, and rightfully so, because you're going to, you're going to take someone's liberty away. You're going to take their civil rights away and you're going to incarcerate them and you're going to hit them with, you know, make some, some very heavy, uh, charges and statements about what they did and you want to be on solid ground and i've always said that and when we have joe on the show we talk about that i never mind being challenged on my investigation by a defense attorney because if i'm doing it and i'm going ahead and i'm arresting somebody i'm going to be on solid. i know that case i worked on it from day one i know what the person told me i know what the evidence is i have no problem with being challenged on it and and the outside chance that someone didn't commit the crime that I arrested them for, then by all means, they should be set free. That's right. Bill and Phil, why would Don and Candace report someone missing so quickly if they're guilty? They lived up on a secluded hill. Couldn't they have waited to report her missing? How do you know they didn't? She could have been missing yeah. since 2.30. That's the last time anyone saw her alive was 2.30. She wasn't reported missing till 6.15, 6.30. So- right. Who knows if it was timely? Again, getting back to vetting the information, vetting the timeline. I don't trust any of these YouTube timelines because they're not vetted against evidence. We don't 100% know. Unless a detective that's working on this case interviewed so-and-so, Don, Candace, H, and has that information vetted against timestamp information, cell phone records, video. I don't trust the information. Absolutely, Bill. I agree with you 100%. From what we know, now we're going based on, like you said, uh, information that's public uh, from interviews of Candace and Don on, on uh, YouTube and the information that the media, that the law enforcement put out to the media. We think there's about a four-hour window between the time she was last seen alive and the time that she was reported missing. Now, in that four hours, I know it doesn't seem like a lot of time, like they could have they could have sat around and and uh, I think they wanted to get out in front of it as quickly as possible if they're involved in it, that they wouldn't wait around because the kids might start asking, well, where's Candace? Or the grandmother might start asking, well, we don't know who might start asking, or maybe they were expecting a visit from Child Protective Services. So whatever wheels started spinning in their brains, if they're involved, I think that... Uh, they made a decision at that point. If it was a horrible accident, maybe what that uh, comment just was, if it was a horrible accident, they wouldn't wait. They would want to do it right away. You know what I mean? So uh, listen, I can't be in the brain of Candace and Don. All I could do is evaluate what I know. And what we know pretty much solidly is that there was, she was last seen alive about 2.30 and they called the police around 6.30. So, you know, Phil, I, I, I want to get back to, I mean, this is, is to me where everything started. I'm just going to show you their first interview, which was on TV very early in the investigation. I'm going to put this up on the screen and we'll take a look at this. She didn't walk away from this property by herself or off this yard by her swing. I feel in my heart that somebody has came up here and took her, has lured her away from here. Me and my mother and her were planting flowers. And we went in after we got done washing our hands. And she got a piece of candy from grandma. And she wanted to go back over and see her brothers. 
And I said, okay. And I walked her all the way over to the porch. And I watched her walk into the kitchen where the boys were watching. And I told the boys, I said, watch Summer. I'll be back. And within two minutes, I came back. And I asked the boys where their sister was. And they said, she went downstairs, mom, to play with her toys in the playroom. I said, okay. And I yelled downstairs for her a couple times. And they didn't get no answer, which was unusual because usually she always answers. And so I went down there to check, and she was nowhere in sight. She was just gone. I don't go on walks around here or runs because I'm scared of the bears and snakes and even the coyotes that are around here. Well, whoever has my daughter, I pray and hope that they have not harmed her and they bring her back to us safe and sound. Just turn, I mean, go to the FBI, the police, and uh, clear it up. And I don't know, it seems kind of elusive. It's really strange that I've never seen this truck and I've never heard of it until just recently. But I wish they would come forward and explain themselves. And if you're not a suspect, they at least come forward and say what you've seen. She was a tomboy. I shaved my head. She wanted to have her head shaved like me and the boys did. She tried to shave her head. She tried in to the shave back her head and, and make it. Uh, I think you can see it in some of the pictures. And it was getting out of control. So she. We decided to shave her head off and let it go back long. And she shaved her head to, to so she wouldn't feel bad. And, uh, but, but it didn't bother at this point. Well, we knew, I knew right away that she was abducted. You know, I knew that right away. And that's what I told them from the beginning, but they have to, they have to go through their, you know, I forget the word. Investigation. I have to do one step at a time, I guess, but I'm sorry that they had to spend so many man hours in these woods and everything. I've seen them limping and everything else, you know, and I feel for them. But I just wish there was a way that neighbors could search neighbors' houses and then if they're not willing, you know, get a search warrant or something, but there's just no way you can search every single house, you know, in the eastern United States or whatever. But I wish there was a way. Just thankful for the person or persons that's doing that. You know, out of love. Trying trying. So I think that you could uh you get a pretty good idea right there that um there's a lot of deception there. I think even uh people that uh, aren't investigators and they listen to that, they they get a pretty uh bad feeling with that. I mean, how did he know that right away she was abducted? Where did that come from? You know, where did he get that? I mean, and then, you know, her whole story about, you know, going into the house, walking her into, I mean, it makes no sense at all. You know, Bill, listen, I got to tell you my gut, when I'm listening to those two tell that story, there's just certain parts of it where I see in their face, and I'm going on a lot of years of experience. They're not being truthful. Now, right off the bat, she's committed. Oh, there's no way that Summer walked off. So she's saying that. She's committed on that. 
She's she's convinced of that. And if, if you do, you have the picture the 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 picture from uh, from Google Maps of the the actual like the compound. Could you throw that up real quick, Bill? Do you have that available? Sure, I think I do. Uh, I want to make a point about that. Well, I guess there's there's a picture where it's a little bit closer, but you could see the, all right that picture right there. That's perfect. Now that area is the compound. You know, you see the mother's trailer, you see the house. That area, it looks like to me that they could be in there unsupervised. The children I'm talking about, because of the 13 dogs and stuff like that. So for her to say that she wanted to go in the house and she walked her over and she told the boys to keep an eye on her. That's complete and utter nonsense. I think that's a self-serving statement that she's worried or she's trying to portray herself as, as the mom that didn't take her eyes off Summer for a second, which is total bullshit in plain English. I'm sorry I got to say that, but that sounds like bullshit to me and I got to call it. So it looks like they, obviously there might be animals in this net, but they have the dogs and the dogs are there to alert them to things like that. And I think the dogs would have alerted them to an intruder. So you have two things that I'm talking about there that, that are right jumping out at me. And then just their, I don't know, their demeanor on how they're talking, their their appearance. There's so many questions that I would have to put to them if I was the, uh, the investigator on the case. But, I mean, you could look at that area, Bill, and see that. You know, there was, I think there were dirt bikes when you look, when uh, we, we saw some, uh, some videos on the internet on YouTube of, of the actual location where they walked through and there was dirt bikes in there. It looked like a fun place to be for a kid, you know, to be running around. I don't think they were that heavily supervised is my point while they were at home on that compound, on that property. I doubt they were highly supervised as she's making it out to be. So that's a point right there. Yeah, no, I agree. Rose 1033. When, uh, thank you for the 499 super chat. When do you think they will be arrested? Time frame. I I can't really predict that. I what I what I will say is that the police, in conjunction with the district attorney, the FBI, the TBI, they won't move forward until they're sure that they have not just probable cause, but they have enough to 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 arrest and get a conviction. There's no point in uh, moving forward uh, until you have the strength of have also having a good case because. Someone could just, they could beat the case, you know. And there's always, there's always been a lot of talk also, can you get a homicide, a murder conviction without the recovery of a body? And the answer to that is yes, you can. It's much more difficult. However, there's something called circumstantial evidence. And circumstantial evidence, when there's a lot of it, can be a very, very powerful type of evidence. Uh, it simply means from which inferences can be drawn. That's circumstantial evidence. Uh, Phil, I know you, you you almost jumped through the screen. You want to say something? Go ahead. I want, I want, you made a great point. I think that's where this case is right now. They're waiting for Summer to be found. I, I'm hoping that she's alive, but if she's not, I think that's what they're, they're waiting on. It's very difficult to try a case if there is no body recovered that's very difficult thing for the prosecutors mm -hmm. to do however not impossible like you said there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that might be where this case is right now and uh one of the persons in the chat said that uh it looks like she agreed the, the, the chat said that she agreed that it looks like candace is covering up for maybe not being uh, a protective mother but however she may not be involved in it very true that's a possibility but 
we need to get her and find out from her and say, did you lie about this? And get her to admit that she didn't, she wasn't, I wasn't truthful when I said that I walked her to the, to the door from my mother's trailer. I wasn't truthful when I told the boys to watch it. You need to say, okay, you, you told us a lie. Let's get the truth. And you'll either find out that she A, is involved or B, is not involved. And that's really what detectives do. They, uh, they, they analyze every bit of evidence and they analyze every person of interest and they figure out if they are involved. And that's what needs to be done here. It may have already been done. You know, we're, we're going on assumptions because we don't have access to the case folder. But I thought that that was a, a pretty good question. Twin Thang, for those screaming arrest them, do you realize they have you have concrete evidence before an arrest is made? If not, they'll get set free 72 hours or so. Do we want that? No, and I just spoke about that. No, we don't want that. Not only do they have to have probable cause, but they have to have strong evidence to use. Another component is they're not going <coughs> anywhere. They, they're going to be accessible for the immediate future. So I don't think there's, there, there's no rush to make an arrest in a case like this. There really isn't. I mean, I know everyone wants justice. Everyone is frustrated. Believe me, I get that. But if you're internally involved in this case, you have to be methodical about your moves. And again, you made a point earlier, Bill. You don't want to make a mistake that could cost you the possibility of someone getting off with a horrendous crime. So I think we're going to see movement if uh, summer is recovered. I think you're going to see a lot of movement in this case if that happens. And again, the uh, direction of the case is probably hinging on that right now. And the prosecutor is not, you know, you can go and arrest anybody you want, but the prosecutor could say, no, I'm not, I'm not calling for an arrest at this time. So I, I think that that's very important. And that's the right way to handle this case. It's the right way. You know, Phil, there was a, uh, and you know this well, there was a case that was featured on the, the TV show, The Perfect Murder, that I was involved in. And it was the murder of a woman named Carmen Quinones and Ruben Frederick. And they li she lived in a brownstone on the first floor, and her ex-husband lived in the same brownstone on the third floor with his new wife. His new wife, a woman named Maria de Jesus, hired these thugs from the Bronx to kill Carmen. So they went there dressed as detectives and she opened the door for them and they stabbed her to death. She happened to be there with her boyfriend, a man named Ruben Frederick, and they killed him also. At the time of that murder, there was a four-year-old girl in the apartment and they were going to kill her too. But one of, the, one of the thugs said, no, she won't be able to ID us, let her live. And they duct taped her and they let her live. Make a long story short, we made that arrest within a week. We arrested the two guys. But the case took over five years to go to trial. Uh, the two main stabbers, they, they got uh, one got uh, life without parole. The other in a cooperation agreement got 23 to life. But the woman, Maria de Jesus, who hired these killers, it took them four years to lock her up. And I remember the NYPD was freaking out. Why isn't she arrested? Why isn't she arrested? And the DA kept saying, I'm not ready yet. I'm building a case. I'm building a financial case. I'm showing where the money went. I'm checking everything. Four years after um, 
I actually went to lock her up with the whole team of guys. We knocked on her door and she was already, she already had counsel. So we couldn't interview her. And I remember um, a detective that was with me, Tony Rivera, he said in Spanish to her, he said, it's all over now, you little bitch. And I just saw her face turn to like stone and like real mean. And uh, she took it to trial. And this was four years after the murder and she got life without parole. Listen, they, they waited. They waited to make sure they had that solid case. That's a great example, Bill. I really love that example because what people don't understand is we do our investigation. We feel confident to make an arrest. So now we bring all the information to the district attorney's office. Now they're going to analyze the evidence. They're going to interview witnesses. And then they have their own investigators that they might, you know, because we're on to the next case. So now you know, uh, we're doing a, a new investigation, a new homicide or a new shooting or whatever it is. So they're going to pick up the ball and they may do some further background checks or they may call for some further uh, telephone information or, uh, you know, information out of a computer. And then when they're confident enough that they can get a conviction on a case and take it to trial, that's when they'll proceed with the charges. And I think that was a great example that you just gave, Bill. Yeah, I mean, you can't just uh, because you want to do something and you think that someone did something, you can't arrest them without evidence to proceed. You need solid evidence to not just make an arrest, but get a conviction, you know. And we we spoke about cases where they got a homicide conviction without a body, and that is possible. And um, I think I had mentioned on a previous show about a doctor in New York who they believe killed his wife. And they built a circumstantial case against him, and they found out that he had thrown something in his trunk, drove to a private airport, took his plane out over the Atlantic Ocean, and that's where they believe he dumped his wife's body out of his plane in the never middle of the night. Body they, never, they never ever found the body, but I believe um, Manhattan Assistant District Attorney Dan Bibb uh, got a conviction in that case. And that was in 2000, so he got 20 to life, so he's right now is eligible for parole or may in fact be out. I don't know. Yeah. You know, there's another component that I think we're kind of skipping over too. If you make an arrest, once you make an arrest, our criminal justice system in the United States says that you now have to turn over your evidence to the defendant and their attorney so that they can prepare a legal defense. So now you, you don't want to, you know, pull the trigger too fast on an arrest when you now have to turn over your evidence and they can impeach that evidence and say, oh, you know, and get the client out of jail. And God forbid, if you have the right person that committed the crime and now they're going to get off like an OJ situation, OJ Simpson, I'm referring to, who clearly killed his wife and her lover, Ron Goldman, and he walked away from it. He was acquitted for murder. I mean, uh, you know, it's obvious everybody knows that case, I'm sure. And uh, you wouldn't want that to happen. So prosecutors will definitely be very methodical about how they're going to move forward in a case, how they're going to authorize an arrest. And they want to be on very solid ground because you have great attorneys out there like Joe Murray that can really, really put together a great defense. And, and, and listen, so be it. That's the system that we have in place. And I think it's a pretty good system. And again, I never minded being challenged by a defense attorney on anything I did as an investigator because we have protocols and we have, so to speak, rules that we follow. And we don't just, you know, violate a person's civil rights and, and go out and arrest them. We do it with 
uh, evidence and we do it with all of our interview techniques and uh, you know we're, we're methodical as well so I think the, the, the case is moving the way it should be I guess is the point and uh, there's just things that we're trying to figure out why I guess to answer the question why is it taking so long and those are some of the reasons you know there's some good uh, questions in the uh, in the chat uh, grave Dodger is it is a longer percentage but there are definitely victims of trafficking that are brought into Mexico from the US they may not stay there but they are definitely trafficked there yes look we don't eliminate any possibility in this case we're, we're talking about from our experience what we see as the probability of what occurred and you know I don't want to I don't want to use the duck analogy because people are uh, People are putting that in the chat. They, they just say, hey, Bill, what about the duck? You know, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck and it flies like a duck, it's a duck. Yeah. yeah. So that's what we look at in, in investigation. Um, let me see some of the chat here. Uh, cat lover, I can almost guarantee you that doors never locked and never closed. There's four kids and they're in the uh, country. They don't lock doors. They're talking about the downstairs um, basement door. Uh, in that house, whether it was ever locked or not. Uh, I don't have a close-up of the house, but they, um, they had that. I wish I had that other picture. I usually have that up where it shows the um, the basement door. Um, look, I, I, I don't see anyone that isn't familiar with that house going anywhere near it. I would be afraid to walk into that house in the daytime. You know, never mind. You, we saw some of the pictures of it. And um, in law enforcement, in a missing person case, the very first place you're supposed to search is the location where the missing person is missing from. In this instance, it was a home. So that should have been searched thoroughly and methodically and gone through everything. And uh, that would have been a tough house to search, too, because it was very cluttered. There was stuff all over the place. There was wires all over the place. Um but that is the very first place. And then they would follow the instructions of, uh, of Candace telling them where she was. And they of course do a perimeter search around the whole house. There's something called a spiral search uh, where you start and you go out on a spiral further and further out. There's a quadrant search. There's all different types of searches that make sure that you cover the, the entire area. Uh, so you don't make any mistakes. And, they use canines. They use dogs. I mean, they, they used one of the most uh, <clears throat> experienced search agencies. There they are right there, Equisearch, and they were involved in that search. So, Fantastic organization. Fantastic. Un 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 unbelievable. David Rader and Tim Miller. Uh, God bless them. Sent, sent by God, definitely. They do Doing God's, God's work. work, for sure. God's work. And they're, they're amazing, amazing people. Uh, you know, I wish that we could come on and, and say we have a, a we have brand new information and we have information that's going to be the smoking gun in this case. It's going to solve this case. But right now we don't, you know, and you just have to be patient that um, law enforcement is working hard on this case. There's three different agencies, the FBI, the TBI and the local police. And you got to have faith that hopefully a, a lead will come in. I'm sure they, they've... Um, had over a thousand tips, way more than that now, and they're still um, they're still they're still working on it. They're going to be working on it. it's a five year old kid. They're going to be working on this case until it's solved. 
Bill, I want to make a point about that back door that was just brought up. Now, we had uh, differing information, but I think it was clear to see that that door may have been a little difficult to open and close. That was one of the things that was said. Now, I want to make a point. There's 13 dogs on that property. Now, I have a small dog. He's blind in one eye. Anybody comes near my front door or if the gardener is in the back of the house, the dog starts to bark. He goes crazy. So now you have a door that might stick or it's a little difficult to open. It's going to make a noise. Now, dogs are very territorial. That's their, that's the lay of their land. So if someone uh, violates that space or they hear a noise, they, they're very, very keen on sounds, dogs. They work with uh, a tremendous sense of smell and their hearing. Their sound is very, very keen. So I would think if someone came in for that door or if someone went out to that door, the dogs would have began barking. And I think someone on the on the property or people home would have been alerted to that. And again, why would someone just, you know, uh, venture off out of that door? She knew that there were different animals in the area. I don't think that's a likely scenario. Both her leaving and someone coming in from that door and removing her. If someone did come in through that door and maybe the dog barked and nobody paid attention, she probably would have started screaming. Again, that would have alerted somebody. Those possibilities don't seem very, very uh, strong to me. It's 6.30 at night when they report a missing, so that means it had to happen during daylight hours. Very unlikely to me. Very unlikely. You know, uh, Phil, David Rader from Equisearch said the same exact thing. He said it was so improbable as he almost thought not possible. Marianne Conklin, thank you for the $5 super chat. Chat, do you think law enforcement is waiting to get phone records back before they have solid evidence? I think they have the records back at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's been 53 days. Is all the technological uh, evidence back yet? I, I can't speak to that, but the phone evidence should be back at this point. Apparently, if you listen to uh, some of the YouTubers, uh, th their phones were returned to them, which means law enforcement downloaded all the information from their phones onto a computer hard drive Absolutely. and has all, has all that information. It's not that they gave the phones back with, and they probably just stripped the phones bare of everything that was on it and returned the phones to them. I want to make a point about Dave Rader because he's not in law enforcement. However, he's very experienced, experienced in these searches, but he has something that both you and I don't have. He had his eyes on the property. He saw in person Candace, Don. He saw the location. So what he tells us is actually very, very important. His observations, I think, are very solid. And he seems like a very common sense guy. And he made similar observations that we had from afar. He was up close and personal on that property, on that location, on those people. So I think that his opinion of what he stated is probably very solid to me you know someone's you're right phil i i totally agree um someone lolo how did they let someone sleep down there uh not even a proper bed not a poster on the wall it's so sad you know i agree that that room looked like a dungeon in fact they're just going to say that it looks like a dungeon bill you're so right and they had the they had five-year-old summer sleeping down there with her nine-year-old brother that's not okay you know and um so yeah there's there were some real problems with this family there's some real problems with that house and um 
you know, as a result, CPS took the three boys a couple of weeks ago. You know, so there's a lot. I don't think that CPS uh, took them on a whim either. They probably, you know, they have certain guidelines that they go through and there's certain protocols that have to be met before they can remove a child. They can't just say, I'm going to remove this kid because I don't like, uh, you know, I don't like the mother the way she looks. There's protocols that they have to meet. There's a, there's a threshold that has to be met before they can say, all right, remove these children. Now, we were calling for that for a couple of weeks before it happened. Now, I hope that they were involved in it before we were calling for it, but there's a possibility that because of us saying, you know, CPS should be involved in this, that they went there, they did their investigation and they removed the kids. Well, we were surprised that they weren't moved early, removed sure. earlier. You know, Absolutely. I had mentioned that. Marlena Cantu, uh, what's your opinion on Don saying, I always knew something was going to happen to Summer. I find that, you know, Horrible. Red flag, red flag. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I definitely find that to be a red flag. And there was many other things that they said that that were a red flag. You know, that predicting no, she was she was abducted. I mean, where did he get that from? You know, where was that prediction coming from? Uh, Marion Conklin, thank you for your okay. Uh, our freedom. I think Don and Candace had this planned out ahead of time, and Grandma and Hunter. We use for alibis. Grandma doesn't want any part of what they did, and they, that is maybe why uh, one reason that she left. Look, all of those things are like unless we can vet the information with other evidence, it's all basically conjecture at this point. Unless we have evidence to prove to prove that. I was involved in a homicide investigation a few years ago. A relative was killed, and five days after the murder. We had the perpetrator identified. It's a long story case, but I'm just going to give a short uh, information about it. Five days into the case, we knew who the perpetrator was. The FBI was involved in that case as well as the NYPD. They didn't arrest the perpetrator until almost five months later. And the reason for that was, and they had a ton of evidence right away. They had video evidence. They had cell phone evidence that they developed over the, you know, the coming weeks. But they were trying to establish if there was somebody else involved in the case. And on that particular case, it took them about five months to make an arrest on the case. The, 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 the murder happened in June. They made the arrest in November. So do the timeline. Point being, these things don't happen in an hour TV show where they have the murder and by the end of uh, 45 minutes, they have the person in custody and they've already convicted him and sent him in jail. Doesn't work that way. These things take time. Everybody, I know you're frustrated. Just be patient. We're going to come to a conclusion on this case. I'm certain of it. Brenda Mayer, why didn't they have a forensic team go in and clean the house with dogs and look for clues hidden areas where she may be? Well, Brenda, that's a great question, and I'm going to answer it to the best of my knowledge. If they process the scene like a crime scene, they actually need to get a search warrant. That's right. Uh, minus them giving permission, and district attorneys don't like to go with permission, like permission slips with a case like this, because if it turns out it is a homicide, a sharp defense attorney could have that thrown out, say, oh, they were under duress. That's why they gave you permission. So for you to answer your question, because they would need a search warrant to do that. Uh, you know what, Bill, great another question. point on that, um, I don't mean to interrupt, but another point on that. When they did their initial search, I am certain that if they found blood or there was signs of some type of struggle or something 
that they thought was out of place that jumped out of them, they would have brought in, they would have gotten a search warrant and they would have brought in the crime scene unit to do a forensic investigation. I'm certain of that. Yeah. I, you know, libertarian boxcar asked police off the cuff. Was someone in that basement before they returned, returned home when someone entered, they snatched her and ran down the dog path under two to five minutes. I don't think anyone remembers time. I, I, I don't think of that as a possibility, but is it a possibility? Yeah, but I don't think it's probable. But how I mean, did they get in that opinion. basement too? There's, there's so much activity going on. It's the middle of the day. Someone secreted himself in the basement before they got home. And I think that's highly unlikely. Wouldn't you say, Bill? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the people that I take the greatest credence in his opinion is uh, David Rader. Of course. Who says he really thinks an abduction in this case is highly improbable. And there's a man who searched for missing kids all over the world, you know, with EquiSearch. He searched for these kids all over the world. So I take what he says as pretty damn strong, you know. And could he be wrong? Yes, this is investigation. We could all be wrong, you know. But of we're course. talking about, you know, probabilities and based on certain evidentiary things, we, we conclude that that probably didn't happen, you know. Absolutely, Bill. And I've been involved in investigations. We were three weeks in on a murder case. We had a guy identified as a possible perpetrator. We, we had him identified in a photo array, which is six photos. And we thought we had the right guy. We threw him into the lineup, which is an in-person with five other people. And uh, four of the witnesses picked him out of the photo. And uh, uh, actually three picked him. And the fourth said, I think it's him, which was like a, a maybe. And when we put him in the lineup, only one said it might be that guy. So that wasn't good enough for an arrest. And as it turned out, when we arrested the right guy, it was uncanny. With The photo that we had was their driver's license photo. The photos look like twins. So these things happen. And like you said, you have to change direction sometime. And it's just the way the case goes. How it unfolds is the way you go. Prayer Garden of America, what I tried to tell you was that you're right. If they give them permission to, to search the home for the child, they don't. But if they want to search for evidence, then they should get a search warrant because that evidence can be thrown out when a sharp defense attorney gets. And, and that is why they would get a search warrant. You're, you're 100% right to search for Candace, excuse me, for Summer. They don't need a search warrant. But if they're going to search the whole premise for evidence, and if you search for evidence under subterfuge, uh, you know, saying you're searching for a summer when, you, in fact, you're searching for evidence of a crime. Yeah, but yeah, if they if they were searching for a summer and they discovered blood evidence, and and but not the body, what they would do is stop the search, get a search warrant to search for that evidence. Because as I said before, that evidence could be thrown out as something known as the fruits of the poisonous tree doctrine. And I don't want to give a law example here, or I'm not an attorney, but I remember that quite well. What that means, if yeah. evidence seized unlawfully is thrown out right. under the fruits of the poisonous tree doctrine. Where's Joe Murray when you need him to explain that? I was that? just going to say, this is where Joe Murray's expertise would come in, but I'm going to try and add a little comment about it. When you're doing a, a search and you think that there's blood evidence, you're now going to recover evidence that may incriminate someone for the crime. It's like a safety net. You're going to get the search warrant so that way down the line, when the evidence is challenged in court, 
you can say, we didn't violate anyone's rights while we were looking for this uh, person that was missing and we found this evidence. We didn't violate anyone's rights. We stopped. We got a search warrant, which is the legal way to do it. We pre presented the search warrant. Then we recovered the evidence. That's something that Joe Murray would be able to expand on, but I think that kind of covers it. It's like a safety net, so to speak, that it protects us when we're in court, down the line, we're at a trial, we're at a hearing, and a judge is going to make a decision on it, and it stands. Great. You know, that was a great way to explain it, Phil. You know, Phil, we've been at this for an hour and uh, 19 minutes, and I know I promised you it would, it would be under an hour, but I always it's lie fine. to you. you know? And no, uh, we, we went over a little bit. Folks, uh, if you like this show, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, please subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, give it a thumbs up. Ring that bell. We also have a Patreon. Uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon. There, There's the site for it. For $7 a month, you're the bucket. For $9 a month, you can polish my rack. And for $11 a month, you're dipped in butter. We have a little uh, humor to our site. But you can get some content on that site that not everyone gets. That's yeah, it. The dipped in butter. There it is. <laughs> there's our Instagram site right there. Uh, I'm Bill Cannon, a retired sergeant from Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me today is the very capable, the very smart, the straight out of Brooklyn, Joe Pesci lookalike, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Phil Grimaldi. And folks, again, uh, we really appreciate you guys listening. We're trying to just give you our um, – uh, someone just asked the question, Bill, what happens if officers um, – hang on, you just – you just escaped. I just, this chat moved so fast. I was reading yeah, it. Yeah, it goes so quick. If it if they get a search warrant and then Candace and I think it was that Candace and and Don object to it. Well, if they get a search warrant, they can't object to it. You right. do the search whether they object to it or not, because the standard of getting a search warrant is probable cause. So, for example, if they found blood evidence, they would go to a judge and say, "Look." There's a five-year-old missing. We found blood evidence. We need a search warrant. Search further. And whether Don or Candace objected to that, their objections uh, doesn't matter if they object. I'll put it that way. The search you warrant goes through. You explained that perfectly, Bill, that you're doing a search for a five-year-old. You find, let's say, blood. You go, you get a search warrant. The judge is ruling. He's going to uh, you know, analyze what is presented to him. He signs that order. It's irrelevant irrelevant what Candace and Don think the search stands and you can get it and recover the evidence. That was uh, Rose Arellanus. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. That's what your, your question was, your exact question. Bill, what happens if officers get a search warrant, but Candace and Don want to stop them? Uh, asked and answered. Uh, that's what a judge says to you or an attorney says. <laughs> asked and answered. That's what the DA says when they object, right? We're asked and answered. Today, I say. That's, <laughs> that's Murray, right. I know. I, I, where's Joe Murray when you need him? All these legal issues come up, and uh, yeah. you know he's not uh, here. Next, uh, next show, we'll get his. Uh, we'll go over some of these things, I'm sure, and uh, we'll get his legal opinion and his legal input. It's it's great. It's really, uh, you know, that's one of the things I wanted to say about our show. So far, we've been really keeping a professional opinion about it. We're not going off the cuff, uh, off the cuff. <laughs> That's what that. the show's called, though. <laughs> We're not shooting off the cuff. We're shooting off the hip with things. Uh, there's a lot of shows on YouTube. There's a lot of people that are making uh, 
specifically, uh, you know, targeting this case and talking about it. We're trying to maintain a professional opinion about it. Professionalism. I think we're doing that. I know that the the uh, viewers are hitting us with some difficult questions and and putting some great comments forward. And uh, all we're trying to do is, and we're not going to expose everything that a detective would do. There's certain things we hold back on, and I, I'm sure Bill, you agree with that. And uh, you know, I think you have right you have to it. hold you have to hold of stuff course. back because of that's course. the things that no one else knows. Absolutely, so you, that's what you use to challenge people when you question them. There's yeah. things that haven't been out there in the public. How are you going to yeah. challenge someone when everyone knows everything, single thing that was said? You have to withhold stuff. And that's part of, you know, investigation, interview, interrogation. And, you know, in my mind and in my experience in the detective bureau and 10 in homicide and 16 in the detective bureaus, we solve most cases through interview and interrogation because NYPD detectives are so good at it from doing hundreds and thousands of interviews and interrogation that becomes, you know, it's funny when you talk about on the job training, that's how mostly people become so good at it is just on the job training, learning from an old hairbag detective. That's a, that's an NYPD expression hairbag. That means you're an old timer, you know, that, I that means that you're getting salty and you're getting a little crusty around the edges. That that's you're, right. That's you're, right. You're, you're becoming uh, cynical, but Bill, you bring up such a good point real quick. I had just about 22 years on the force. I spent just about 18 and a half years as an investigator from, from the time I went into plain clothes doing anti-crime. That's investigative work. Then I was in the robbery squad. I did that for two years. Then I went into the detective bureau doing just uh, mostly homicide and shooting investigation. And I spent most of my career doing that. So we're not, my point is this, we're not coming from. There's, a, there's a, there's a young, from. there's a young Phil Grimaldi on the screen. I don't know if you guys could see that. <laughs> that's there he is, uh, smiling. I, I had my disco haircut. My <laughs> that, that's a, that's a young haircut. Joe Pesci on the scene and <laughs> on the screen there. <laughs> yeah, that was about uh, probably about uh maybe three or four years before I retired. But uh, yeah, thank you for that uh, that picture, Bill. <laughs> Someone wrote, anyone is there, oh, anyone is there always bashing on these crime channels. You know, it's just, it's, I guess it's human nature. Uh, sometimes you're not bashing when you give your opinion on something. You're just giving what you feel is facts. And if uh, we're all big boys, you know, and if someone wants to criticize me and say they don't agree with what I say, that's fine. You know, something I've been wrong before, you know. April Farris, thank you for the five dollar super chat. Do you think the law enforcement? Let me let me lock that in. Do you think the law enforcement are still waiting on phone records to come back, or how long would these tend to take? How probable something with the boys happen? April, uh, we we had answered that before. We think that they have all the, the cell phone records back at this point. They're still probably can maybe be evaluating and comparing them against interviews, interrogation and other evidence that they have. How probable something with the boys happened? You know, look, anything is possible. I don't think that that's that probable because they were home when uh, Candace took her out to the, you know, on the, all those errands earlier in the day. That's where something, in my opinion, occurred. That's when it occurred. You, you know, Bill, real quick on that, the phone records, 
I mean, generally they would take two, three weeks, something to that effect, maybe even a little more. But on something like this, with the FBI involved and the TBI involved, they might put a rush on it and ask to to uh, expedite it, where it might take just as little as a week or a few days. So you, I think it's safe to say that they do have the phone records, but they may be coming across other people or putting in further, you know, phone phone record uh, requests maybe as little as the last few days. So there might be things happening that we don't know. Obviously, we're not privy to the case. So, uh, But that's a good question. And the boys being involved, uh, I don't know about it being involved, but I think with their uh, interviews are going to be very important to this case, for sure. We've, we've discussed that many times. Absolutely. Uh, Hack, Bill, have you been wrong that went against your gut feeling? You know something? I will humbly say I've been wrong many times. But I believe that you go with your gut and you go with your instincts. And I always believe that. But have I been wrong? I'll be the first to admit I've been wrong many, many times and will be wrong again in the future. Anyone that doesn't admit that is full of, uh, what do they call that? (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if you can't admit to your the infallibility of of your talent, your experience, it's not infallible. And we all make mistakes. Think about that, though, Bill. Think about that. If if you are not willing to say, "All right, this is not right. This is this is wrong," you could be putting someone in jail that's innocent, and that would be the most horrible thing you can do. I don't care who it is. If they didn't do the crime, they shouldn't be doing the time. Hundred percent, hundred percent. You know something, we Phil. Now we're almost at an hour and a half, so I think we got to go. I think we tried to say we tried to say goodbye, but we got so carried away with this. We, we, you know, we love we love talking to you guys. We love doing this show. And again, uh, it's police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you're not a subscriber, please go on YouTube, subscribe, hit that bell. You know, and we love reading the chats. I try to go and answer most of the. I can't answer all some of these chats. We've had five, six hundred, seven hundred people have made comments and uh, I appreciate you guys. Believe me, I love uh, talking to you. I love to hear what you have to say. And uh, that's my last words. Phil, you got a last words before we go? Last words, prayers that summer will be found safe and sound, or there will be a conclusion to the case sometime soon. Uh, Bill, just delighted to be part of the police off the cuff uh, podcast. And, uh, you know, we'll be back again, I'm sure, talking about this case sometime soon. Everybody stay safe out there. Enjoy your weekend, and God bless. Folks, have a great weekend, a safe weekend, and we'll see you again soon. Good afternoon now. Take care.